Today we're going to be in Romans 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I had such a profound sense as I came up for, to, to take communion and being among the people of God. Just the, the feeling of being part of the church, is an, it's such an amazing thing, right? That we are all together receiving from God when we come to church. There's people up here, I'm here, but ultimately God is feeding us and it's an amazing feeling. No. Taken aback by that this morning. But uh, it's good to be sharing with you this morning. I've been away for a few weeks. We were on vacation for a couple weeks and then on our 4,000 mile road trip. And then, uh, <laughs> which I'm gloating about, I guess. I was pretty impressed we pulled that one off. And then last week we had our, our uh, CMA missionary that works with Envision, which is a CMA uh, missions group. He came and shared about the new work they're going to be doing in Miami. And, uh, and we've been partnering with that Miami field. So it's great to be back. And this, this message that's come out of my thinking and my heart, really, over the last uh, few weeks, as I thought about this morning, you know, it's, to me, it's such a big message. It's something that is, is a challenge, as preaching from Romans often is. Because if, you, if you've read the book, it's, a, it's an argument, and he builds and builds and builds and builds. It's very hard to sometimes preach on one part of it, because it's a big picture kind of book. But God's really given me uh, something to talk about from Romans 1. Uh, we, as, as I've hinted at earlier, we were reading through the Bible as a church through a program called Mission 119. And this past Monday, we did Romans 1. Tomorrow, we start week 27, day 1, and that's going to be Romans 6. So it's, it's an incredible free program. There's an app on the App Store, Google Play, in your browser at mission119.org. And if you start on week 27, day 1, you can read along with us. And, and Pastor Soper, who's a, a really good guy, a guy that I know, has an amazing wealth of biblical knowledge and passion for the church. A passionate dude. And he pours out his love and knowledge about these Bible passages that he's preached his entire life. He just retired a couple months ago. So uh, you might be able to catch a vision of God that you never thought was possible. Maybe it seemed too small for you. You haven't understood how it all fits together. It's an amazing benefit, uh, as we'll see today, to zooming out and seeing the big picture. So uh, if you want to kind of go toe-to-toe against Bible school people and seminary people, you'd probably do it if you went through this program. You get a lot of knowledge. So I, I would like to commend that to you. But we, we did Romans 1 last week, and our speaker actually spoke in Romans 1, which is unplanned, but I'm speaking on the first part that he didn't speak on. So I'm going to start out by starting with just some information about myself that might be a way to frame today's uh, message. So like many of you, I have a little world on Facebook. Who has a little world on Facebook? A little galaxy that they are the sovereign lord over. <laughs> With tiny snapshots of my life. And on my profile, I've decided that its purpose for me is to share funny things that I think of. Uh, maybe quotes I've enjoyed, pictures of my family that other family members and maybe even friends might want to see. Grandparents love that, so that's, that's been very nice. Uh, music that is inspirational to me songs I've written, and stuff like that. So if you were to go and scan my Facebook profile, you would see a snapshot of my life, mostly positive. When you say that most of your Facebook is positive, let's face it, it's linked to deep, deep levels of depression for people to view other people's great lives, by the way. So Facebook is doing something to us. But yeah, we mostly put positive stuff on there. It's a little snapshot. And Facebook is a great tool for us if we decide how we're going to use it ahead of time and don't approach it haphazardly. Um, my main point is, 
in all of this is some of my college friends and some of my more acquaintance uh, friends, having only scrolled through my profile in the course of their newsfeed expeditions, uh, believe things about me which are true, but are not true as to the whole picture of who I am as a person. They're just a snapshot. So my friends in college are growing this image of me that is not complete, yet it is true. In fact, some of the things I post are core to my being, but without the other stuff, it doesn't make sense. There are deeper things that are true of me that a casual observer of my Facebook could never know. You know, private battles I have, insecurities I have, tragedies that have affected me and my family so deeply that to think of them is to shed tears in that moment. And some of you know exactly what that's like. These are all things that have ended making me up into the man that I am today as God has redeemed and worked in my life. No one looking at my Facebook in a cursory way could guess at my questions about faith or the depth of some of my spiritual convictions, which really are the things that blow me forward, like, really hard. Uh, no one looking at my Facebook could know how curious I am and how open I am to conversation with anyone about anything. It's very, I'm a very curious person, and I, just, I really have a passion to understand people and uh, their experience of life and how they think about life. That's very primary for me as a person. And I love to see how people think. And I love to think, I wonder if I should think that way. Uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. People that look at my Facebook don't know how passionately angry I can get about certain things. You know, These are things that don't end, generally end up on your Facebook feed. They might guess at some of those things knowing me, but it's only a snapshot. Friends of mine who are pastors or musicians, or what have you, but I'm in the, the pastor world here with some of my uh, other people that are pastors, seem to be very comfortable making their personal Facebook pro profile basically like, I'm a pastor and that's all I am. That's what I do. And there's nothing wrong with that, but people have asked me why I'm not like that or why I don't post a lot of pastory things. And the answer is pretty simple. I'm much more than the sum of my parts. And I don't want to be pigeonholed into a small vision of myself that doesn't really share the whole story. Um, there's so much more to me than the deep conviction that I'm called to be a pastor, which is very deep. And in particularly that I'm called to be the pastor here. That's very deep in me. Though these things are incredibly important and are woven deeper than anyone can really know, not even this calling to be a pastor under Jesus Christ, and your pastor in particular, trumps the total picture of who I am as a person made in God's image. thought about showing you some of the weird stuff that I can do, but I thought that'd be distracting, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Everyone is very tempted to, to reduce other people and reduce themselves to certain aspects of their identity, which then form the picture of who they think they are. But no one but God, and only sometimes ourselves, truly knows who we really are and what makes us that way. And when I approach people as a pastor in this church, I have this idea in mind that no one should ever be reduced to whatever seems to be the most obvious personality characteristic or the most big thing about their life. People are much more complex than that. God, it says in Hebrews and in Psalms, has made humans a little bit lower than the angels. So how dare we reduce other people or ourselves uh, to try to fit a little idea of someone or a snapshot. We don't just reduce each other uh, in life to just small things. Uh, we also reduce complex matters and uh, thought processes into easy, breezy sayings, mantras, and thoughts. And sometimes we accidentally reduce things that are in the Bible uh, as well. 
as in today's sermon, things we learn about the Bible, God's written word, it's no one's fault really, but we come to the Bible with a pre-understanding of certain words. And then whenever we see the word, our brain says, definition in your brain, Wikipedia definition, and you just keep going. You don't really read what the Bible is saying that word means. It's a really interesting concept, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. So once you learn what different words mean, you, you sort of say, wow, you know, the cultural understanding I was given in my church or in my culture, it's not full. It's only partial. So uh, I'm convinced that this is the case with a very special word for us in the church, and that's the word gospel. Believe it or not, the way the Bible defines gospel is different, or at least bigger, it's bigger, than how we define it. What we would call the gospel fits into the Bible's definition of the gospel, and indeed it's like the, it's the key to understanding the gospel, but it's not uh, the gospel. The gospel's bigger. And living into this idea of what the gospel really is will allow us to make application to our faith in a significant way. So I think this is an important exercise. Um, we're going to look at what the Bible, at least in our passage today, and I'm going to reference some other passages, teaches us about what the gospel is and how our cultural understanding of the gospel fits into it, but is not, complete, is not the complete picture. I mean, Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel. So we should probably know what that is. That'd be great. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Probably important. So we're going to read today's passage in Romans 1, 1 to 17. And notice the usage and the context of the word gospel as we read through this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. In my prayers at all times, I pray now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith, by faith, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So our question is, what is gospel according to the scriptures? Uh, in this, specifically in this passage and in several others. 
Um, here's things I've heard about the gospel from both famous pastors and from uh, people that I've known that have preached on this topic. When, people are, when pastors are making their appeal for the gospel and having people receive it, they essentially reduce the gospel down to the plan of salvation, which is the most important part of the gospel, but isn't the whole gospel. The plan of salvation is important. There's no way to get into a right relationship with God except through receiving the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sins. That is the only way to have a relationship with God that's restored. It's the only way to be assured that you are saved, that you are declared to be righteous now, even before the final judgment. That's the only way. But the gospel can't be minimized to just the plan of salvation. So here's something I've heard a pastor I know and other famous pastors say, something like this. And this is a, a fictional retelling that I've, I've uh, come up with. It's based on reality. So when they're sharing the gospel, they might say, you might be overwhelmed by this big Bible here. You might not know anything of what it says from its beginning about the history of God's people or God's historical work of redemption. But let me tell you, there's only one thing you need to know about the gospel. Jesus died for your sins in your place so that you could be forgiven by God and spend eternity with him. All people have sinned. All people deserve punishment for their sins. And so God sent Jesus to take on this punishment for you so you can be saved and receive Jesus as your personal Savior. By the way, I love that. That is, that is the plan of salvation. That is so vital to our faith. So if you are overwhelmed, just throw out the Old Testament. Focus only on Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. You don't need the Old Testament. Have you heard this preached before? Okay. Throw out the Old Testament. Focus on Jesus' on Jesus's death, and death, really. That's all that really matters. And I've been guilty in the past of reducing the gospel to this one thing, the plan of salvation, which is part of the gospel. And, and making it about a personal decision only. But important for us to consider today is that in this fictional account, it's just the plan of salvation. It's the only plan of salvation there is, but it's not the full gospel of God or of Jesus Christ, which Paul mentions in our passage today. My, my concern in all of this is if we take the plan of salvation out of the context of the gospel, which I'm going to define for you at some point here, we take it out of the gospel then we lose a lot of understanding on how it affects our lives. And we end up saying, you know, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus. I'm forgiven of my sins. Now what? And the gospel really answers that question. Now what? The only thing that matters is not just making a decision for Jesus and asking him to forgive you of your sins. There's more. There's, there's a reason that God saved us and gave us that plan of salvation. Another observation I have about how we view the gospel and share the gospel is that many times, and this is really weird, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is made as like a footnote to the salvation talk. So we say, Jesus died for you, for your sins, so they could be covered and you could be saved and you can go to heaven and have eternity with him, which is true. And then people pray. And you can go through that whole conversation without even mentioning the resurrection, which Paul says, if, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is worthless. So it's kind of funny that when we even share the plan of salvation and we leave out that piece of the story, that's kind of odd, considering Paul says we need that piece of the story in order for it to, be, to work. The gospel is a complex, rich, and textured account of the Old Testament, the prophets, all who came before, who prophesied about the coming of a Messiah, the Savior and King of the world. People hoped for Jesus 
for thousands of years before he came. The gospel is about the Old Testament story. It's about Jesus coming to fulfill all of the expectations of the prophets through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and our belief that he's coming back to finish setting things right in this world. The gospel is the place where the plan of salvation nests perfectly. And the gospel cannot be accessed without the plan of salvation. But the gospel is bigger. The gospel calls us from the moment that we make a personal decision to, to believe in Jesus and to put our faith in him, to be forgiven of our sins, it takes us from there and it disciples us into kingdom people who are living by a different set of rules than the world and who are expressing God in this place where we live. The plan of salvation is the most important part of the gospel because it's completely key. There's no way to access the gospel apart from it. But, make no mistake, before Jesus even died and rose again, they were preaching the gospel in the Old Testament. Jesus preached the gospel in the New Testament because he like was the fulfillment of the gospel. So, all through the whole thing, they were saying, this is coming. God's going to finish and conclude Israel's story and make it complete. And then make a way for Gentiles, Jews, anybody to come into this family through faith in what Jesus did. And that's where the plan of salvation comes in. And then they're part of this gospel story that's rolling forward. So the gospel takes into account all of the Old Testament, the resurrection of Christ, the hope of his second coming, and it, and it packages it up so that we can understand how then do we live? What shall we do? Since Romans 1 is what we're grappling with today, we're going to look at this attempt of, of uh, Paul to kind of uh, define the gospel. An another really interesting place to find a, uh, one of the best definitions of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's, it's really interesting because Paul says, says, I'm going to share with you about the gospel. And then he shares this uh, piece of text that most biblical scholars believe was an oral tradition where the Christians all said this when they got together. This is what we believe. This is what we believe. And he inserts it into his document. So Paul has this really full uh, definition in 1 Corinthians 15. But today we're looking at Romans 1. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spear of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see how our pre-understanding of gospel is meaning just the plan of salvation? It's defined right there. It says the gospel is the promises that were, they were given beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding the Son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, that Jesus' life mattered as well as his death, right? And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power, or made to be, is a better translation. Um, he was shown to be. He was already the Son of God, but he was shown to be the Son of God through his resurrection, proving to the world, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So the first observation we make when we think about this idea of the gospel being a big concept with salvation being the essential component. First, Jesus, Jesus means God is salvation. That's Jesus' first name. That's a pretty cool name for your meaning. It's, that's uh, rooted in Yeshua, which means God is salvation. And Christ means Messiah, which means anointed one, future ruler, priest, and king. So Jesus' name should give us a clue about what the gospel is. Uh, it's the whole story of God's salvation in the anointed king who was God and fulfilled and completed God's plan of redemption that he had been doing in Israel. So, the second thing we see from this Romans 1 passage, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of God, and later he, just, he uses a different signifier, the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, something I love that John Soper said this week, that it's so Jesus and God, it's God-centered, this gospel. This is something that God has done. He's the author of it. He invented it. He supplies the power to carry it through. And he's made this plan from the beginning of the world. Uh, there was never a sense in which Jesus was a plan B for creation. Like, oh, we tried this, didn't work. Tried Israel, that didn't work. I guess we'll try Jesus. It was, that's, this is something people have told me. This is a, theolo- a real theology that's out there. But God had this really like deliberate plan uh, from the beginning, you'll recall in, Roman, in Genesis 1, I preached on earlier this year, it says uh, to, to the, when Adam and Eve sinned, God says when he's done judging them and, and uh, shepherding them in that way, you will crush his head, but he will strike your heel. From the beginning, God said, you know, evil's going to be crushed out. There's going to be a little bit of uh, stuff that happens in between. But ultimately, um, on the cross, Jesus crushed the head of Satan broke the power of sin and death, and he rose again. Amazing thing. So this, this gospel of God, this gospel of Christ, is a deliberate plan that God has always had from the beginning. It's very mysterious, but it's true. And it's something that he's been working on throughout the history of the world, the history of the Bible, into our present day. He completed it in Christ. So Paul defines gospel in Romans 1. He says, it's what God promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And, uh, and here I just want to re-emphasize and unpack that Paul considers everything that happened in Israel's history to be a part of the good news of the gospel. Everything that happened. Um, in, in, the, in Paul's day, gospel originally meant the declaration of victory or the f- fulfillment of a hope of victory. Um, and that's what good news meant. Uh, Paul says to us that his gospel is good news. And it's completely related to what God promised to the prophets, that God was going to fulfill all things. So looking more carefully at this passage in verse 2, the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding the Son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The promised gospel is the good news that Jesus is the one who had been prophesied about from the beginning. All throughout the Old Testament, Jesus was the future son of David from the line of Israel's great King David, who was proven to actually be God's son to everyone when he resurrected from the dead. So the gospel is not simply this plan of salvation where we put our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. The gospel contains that, but the gospel is a bigger story that God is unfolding in creation, which is exciting. The definition of the gospel, then, is the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and resurrection. And you'll see, in the, in the, look in the sermons of Acts, 
when, when the apostles are preaching the gospel. They're sharing about all these different parts of Jesus' life. It's all good news because his very life is, is nodding at the fulfillment of God's grand plan of salvation. It's an amazing thing. So the context of all of that, that is, uh, is, is the gospel, that this same Messiah who was foretold in the prophets of Israel has culminated God's great plan of salvation. The story of Jesus fulfills Israel's story and brings it to its perfect completion and fulfillment, culminating in the kingdom of God, which we are all now a part of. And you can really look at uh, this idea of, of the gospel as Jesus is the victorious king. Jesus broke the power of sin and death. He's called people out of darkness into his light through the atoning sacrifice, yes, of Jesus Christ, his son, the plan of salvation. And then he calls them to be people that declare the good news to everybody. It's really cool. This is something that God has desired from the beginning. The whole story, and I'm gonna, I wrote down kind of like a, a, a Cliff Notes version of this, this gospel story to capture our imaginations. God created man and woman in his image. He created them to rule the earth on his behalf, under his authority. If you look at the language in Genesis of what Adam and Eve were called to do, it's remarkable. Before sin, these people were called to cultivate and, uh, and take care of the earth. Name all these animals. Amazing. Shows you something about who God is. His original people, Adam and Eve, failed to obey him as ruler, and so creation became covered with the fruits of sin, darkness, injustice, and disobedience as people stopped following God. At that time, God made a promise about one who would come and crush the power of death itself. Sometime later, God called Israel out as his people. They had some problems. Anyone who's read the Bible with us so far can see that there's, they're not a perfect people. You want to see the love and mercy and patience of God, contrary to popular opinion, read the Old Testament. God worked with them, his people, time and time again, with discipline and patience throughout the scriptures. He chose his people not so that they could be the only people that he'd ever have, but so that they could be a blessing to the entire world. After Israel forgot God, um, one of the times, God allowed them to become slaves of another nation in Egypt. But then after a period of time, God heard their cries, and God raised up Moses to deliver God's people from slavery. He did, so the people were, were set free in amazing deliverance. Uh, that was the biggest story of, of the the Hebrew people, an amazing story of deliverance from God. But because of disobedience, uh, unfortunately, the people of God ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. So the story continues. But finally, they entered the promised land. Unfortunately, is the sentence that all, the word that all these sentences start with, they continued to not take God seriously enough as their king, and so they chose human kings, which God allowed because they were insistent upon it. Although God said, it's not going to be a good thing for you guys. Then we have a history of some good, but mostly bad kings, which leads to more judgment, and then God sends judges and prophets to speak to his people, which they by and large refuse to listen to, with a few gleams of, of prettiness in between. There are some beautiful stories. Finally, God's dream people, Israel, go into exile and are broken up geographically from each other. All seems lost. But throughout this narrative, from that first moment, God has prophesied that he will send a Messiah who will throw his birth, life, death, and resurrection 
fulfilled the scriptures concerning him perfectly. And ultimately, the promise God made at the beginning of time. This person was Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the good news that he was born, that he died according to scripture, that he resurrected. And through his resurrection, God has made him the rightful Lord of all the earth. So that finally God's purposes of people, of ruling the earth through his people who are submitted to his authority could be fulfilled finally in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. And this whole story from beginning of time is what the gospel means. Paul then says that this gospel, that fundamentally it brings salvation. When people hear this message, it brings salvation. He says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, both for Jews and for Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. In the gospel, in this story of Jesus fulfilling perfectly the law, it shows the righteousness of God. That means covenant justice. In other words, God is not winking at sin here. He's saying, these people broke my law for forever, and I cannot leave sin unpunished. And so, because I love these people, and I've called them to myself, I myself am going to take on the penalty for my own law by coming as Jesus Christ and dying on the cross. So God himself fulfilled his own covenant that people failed to keep for a long time by sending Jesus uh, so that we could be the people of God. And now we live by faith in what he's done, the culmination of the gospel. It's a this belief is, is just a settled conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead and that we are saved through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for us and through which we're called into a new life. Paul later says in, in, in uh, Romans 3, that's later in this week's reading, he, he lays out the, the plan of salvation, which is something we know as justification by faith. And he lays this out as being the core that brings everyone together and something I love about Christianity is there is no Christians up here and Christians down here. Everybody is equally living by grace, by the grace and love of God. We are justified by faith, not by our works. So we can't really boast about what great people we are. So he says in, in Romans three twenty-one to 26, a righteousness from God, a covenant faithfulness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a payment in full by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience, forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justification, yeah, it's the belief that God fulfilled his own law through sending Jesus, the promised Messiah, who shed his blood on the cross, and through his death in our place, um, we are challenged to make a personal decision to turn from our sin and rebellion towards the king and receive the gift of grace through faith. And when we do this, when we receive this gift of faith, we are declared forgiven of our rebellion, our sin, 
And we become a part of this larger gospel story that God's calling us all into, that he's been telling from the beginning. So this is where the gospel makes a whole lot of sense as to what we are to do after we have been justified by faith. The answer is, you were saved in this way for a purpose. The plan of salvation wasn't just to get you saved. It was for a purpose. There's a bigger purpose for you, and that's really good news. We are, we are saved in this purpose to be a new people of God, um, along with the, God's uh, beloved Jewish people, who Paul makes a great argument about how we're all included together in this gospel. Um, we are all included together to be a new people of God who declare the story of the gospel, including the plan of salvation, to everyone on God's behalf as he makes his appeal through us. The other answer as to why we were saved, it's that we are to no longer consider, consider ourselves kings or queens of our lives, but we are now submitted to the authority of a new king. Literally. Like, in other words, it's not just a decision you make, and then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to heaven. Well, let's get through this next 70 years. I like golf. I could get really good at golf in 70 years. That's not it. When people become Christians, we're told to count the cost. It's, a, it's not like it's this easy, breezy thing. We say, Jesus, forgive me through your sins. And now you are the Lord of my life. I'm part of your kingdom. And I submit to you. I no longer live for myself. In the context of the true gospel message, the big picture, you know, it's impossible to take God up on his plan of salvation without turning and living a life of obedience to him as the king. We're still all ultimately living by grace. We're not earning our salvation. But we have, we're under new management, technically speaking. Uh, it says in the Bible, who, someone who has uh, faith without deeds, is, the faith is not real. It's dead. If it doesn't affect your life at all. And Paul, in, in Romans, uses this expression, the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, he, he, he assumes that people that have true faith will begin to obey the king because that's what the gospel is about. It's about there being a new king who fulfilled everything and we become his children through faith in his sacrifice and then we are under new management. That's why Christians are so peculiar, according to the Bible. They live differently than the rest of the culture. It's a countercultural type of thing. So anyone who truly receives God's gift of salvation, when they hear the plan of salvation in the gospel, become called to obedience to the true king of the world. So how do we respond to a message like this? And I'm going to ask the worship band to come forward. We're going to end with a bang today. It's going to be awesome. This is good news. This is good news that God has fulfilled everything and called us into this new way. If you have never known the full gospel story and never heard or obeyed God's call to you to become part of what he's doing on this earth, in response to all you've heard here today, do you need to believe in Jesus Christ? To believe the gospel of who he is? And receive forgiveness finally through his blood. Um, Jesus, we literally have sin that literally cannot be forgiven any other way except through acknowledging that Jesus' blood is the only covering that's available to us. That's my belief and conviction. That drives me forward. Do you need to begin treating God as being a real king, a real authority figure? There's so many parables in the Bible, and you should read them in Luke. The king leaves people, tells them what to do. He goes away for a long time. He comes back. They're not doing what he said to do. <laughs> it's, we, it's human nature. We just need like constant, like, good job, buddy. 
But I'm so proud of people who make hard decisions to follow King Jesus when there's no reward. And sometimes there's costs to it. And they're like, I'm doing it because I know this is what the king wants me to do in my life. The Lord. Um, that I really respect a lot. So are you ready to reject this gospel of just managing our sin and trying not to feel too guilty and receive that the forgiveness that draws you into a story that calls you into a new life under new management, which I haven't figured out fully yet either. You know, we start one place. We ha- it all starts with faith in what the Son has done for us. Then we begin to move. And I'm convinced that this gospel, including the plan of salvation, it contains the only salvation available. And if, you don't, if we don't listen to this invitation God's given us, that we are, anyone who doesn't is without ultimate hope. There is no hope for the person that refuses the gift. And it's just going to cause us to perish without God someday and miss out on this dream that God has of the church and the kingdom. So take this seriously. God does not want to be an accessory to your life, certainly, or a sin management tool. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to forgive you. He wants to supply grace for you in your weaknesses and show you how to walk in the kingdom. If you had, uh, secondly, you know, for people that do know Jesus, if you have been confused about if there is anything else to being a Christian uh, besides praying the sinner's prayer and eventually going to heaven after a long and boring time on earth, um, (laughs) today you heard this big vision gospel message. Uh, It's good news that Jesus has fulfilled all things from the beginning of time to the, the Jewish law and is now ruling the world as its rightful king and calling people forward. God requires that you receive forgiveness through uh, his cross on salvation, but he doesn't want your salvation to remain dormant until you're dead. He really doesn't. Um, you are now a part of God's kingdom, which does not look like the kingdoms of the world. So in this kingdom, all things are becoming new as God breaks in to creation with the promise that someday he will actually come back and complete the work that he's begun on this earth. So in other words, here we are taking care of our little ranch of our life, serving God the best we can, waiting for his return, but we're seeing his actual presence and power by the Holy Spirit begin to bring forth the fruits of the kingdom in our present reality, in our present day. We're seeing people get healed. We're seeing God's provision. We're hearing words from God. We're, we're hearing echoes of the king uh, through the Bible. And one day he promises he will come back and he will, he will set things right. And all the injustice and garbage we see on television will be fixed. Our injustice will be fixed. Um, I wouldn't want to be on the wrong end of it. God's going to take care of business. It's going to be good. It's going to be a good, beautiful thing. Until the time when God comes back, each of us who know him are called to be tellers. The Bible says ambassadors of the gospel story, including that plan of salvation uh, by faith through grace. So you veterans, veteran Christians have a lot to do too. We need to resubmit our lives to Christ every day. Paul says, I die daily. He's like, well, this is how I am. I just have to die daily to myself because I always want to do what I want to do all the time. And that is true of everybody here. So we need to resubmit our lives to the authority of Christ as our king and search our heart to see if we really desire to please him. So if we don't really have a desire to even please God or desire to obey him, Maybe you're not a Christian. (laughs) Just putting it out there. Because obedience comes from faith. And faith without works is dead. Um, If you're an anxiety person, I'm sorry. Sermon applications often hurt people with anxiety because they feel worried about their salvation all of a sudden. 
hey, if you care about your sin in your life, if you care about wanting to walk in, in closer with God and wanting to take care of things, and you're, you're even thinking, oh goodness, I hope I didn't lose my salvation. Guess what? You're probably saved, definitely, because people that aren't saved don't care. So don't be, don't be anxious if you're an anxious soul. But let's stop treating God like more than a cool sidekick or mascot or, uh, or a cheerleader. You know, Jesus is the king of the world. God has placed everything under his feet. And there is an obedience that comes with true saving faith. So Christians, check yourself. Examine yourself. People that don't know Jesus, count the cost and see if you want to be part of this story. It's the only story that's going somewhere good. I believe that. That's something I believe. So let's celebrate God as, as king as we close. If you made a decision uh, for the first time or recommitted yourself to this gospel thing that we're doing here, talk to me uh, through email. Tell me if you're nervous by the message or if you just think it's a bunch of hogwash. I respect your journey. I'd love to hear where you're at. And I'd love to hear if you've made a decision to follow Jesus or if you've deepened your commitment to, to him as king of your life. So talk to me, please. Um, I love God's heart here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is when Jesus comes back. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now this is a serious invitation from God for us. So consider these things in your heart and talk to me. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are going to set this world right. I thank you that you're already doing it through the gospel and through what Jesus did on the cross. Thank you for making all things new for those of us who know you and making us a new creation, for bringing healing to our souls, to our physical bodies sometimes, and providing for us and guiding us uh, as, we, as we learn how to be ambassadors for you, to let people know there is another kingdom that is unshakable. But the kingdoms of this world that appear so strong are shaking. Their foundations are broken. They are going to fall. And only your uh, kingdom is going to last. Jesus, we help, help us to respond in the way we need to, God. And I pray you the blessing of your Holy Spirit, uh, his presence, and his grace in every household that's represented here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.